Amen. All right, I am glad that today's Communion Sunday. It's a special day to be in the house of the Lord indeed. But before we get to communion, we're going to read a psalm together and, and walk through it. And my hope is that as we read through Psalm 111, that this will just till the soil of our hearts in preparing our hearts to receive the body and the blood of Jesus Christ this morning. I think it's going to be a, a time of dwelling in God's Word that will enrich our time of partaking in the Lord's Supper. Psalm 111 is really part of a, a two-part song. It's a, like a two-disc set or something that you would buy. It was really meant to be sung with Psalm 112. And the, the cool thing about both of these psalms that you don't really see in the English text is that uh, they are both acrostic poems. You know what an acrostic is? An acrostic's like if you write your name, like Nathan, N-A-T-H-A, and then you, you list something, you know, about yourself or something, that's an acrostic, right? Or you take, I, I know my kids have these uh, alphabet books, right, where A is for alligator, and B is for beaver, and C is for cat, and, and so on down the list, right? That's sort of how this, these, both of these psalms are. They are both acrostic poems with the Hebrew alphabet. And again, you can't really tell in your English text, but... There's 10 verses, right, in Psalm 111. The first eight verses are couplets. So there's two lines. It, you know, my Bible is kind of jumbled, but you can see it clearly. There's two lines. So that's 16 verses, right? And then the, the last two verses are triplets. So that's six verses. So 22 total verses. If you don't include the first, praise the Lord, there's 22 lines. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So the first line of each psalm starts with Aleph. And then the second line starts with bait. And then the third line starts with gimel. And then the fourth line starts with dalit. It's really cool uh, to see that. We, again, we lose that in, in, in English. But the cool thing is that God's the God of all creativity, right? God's the God of all creativity. And whenever his people express this kind of beauty in design and, and creative outlets, God is glorified. So we rejoice in God's creative purposes this morning as we read through these psalms together. Psalm 111 is all about the greatness of our God, and Psalm 112 is all about the greatness of the person who follows after God. Psalm 111 that we're going to read this morning talks about God's works and the marvelous things that, that he's done, and it says that God's righteousness endures forever. His praise endures forever. He is both gracious and merciful. And Psalm 112 says that the person who lives into God's best, into God's ways, who follows all God's precepts, that for that person, their righteousness will also endure forever. And that they also, like God, will be gracious and merciful themselves. So they're really meant to be read together, but we only have time to read one, so we're going to dive into 111. I encourage you to go home and read Psalm 112. It was interesting in our readings on Friday they split Psalm 111 and 112. It was 109 through 111 on Friday, then 112 through 114 on Saturday. So that was a mistake, I'm sure. You need to read them together. They're, they're, they're great together. So I encourage you to go home again and read Psalm 112 after this. So verse 1, praise the Lord. You know the Hebrew for that? I bet you do. You say, I don't know any Hebrew. You ever heard Alleluia? Hallelujah? That's Hebrew. For praise you, the Lord. 
Hale means praise. Lu means ye or you, right? Praise ye the Lord, as the King James says. And then Yah, Yahweh, right? The true God of the universe, the holy and exalted God. Praise you the Lord. Hallelujah. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. You may be looking around and say, I'm not with the upright, but we are in the congregation and we are doing our best to follow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who has made us upright by his body and blood, which we are going to partake of in a minute. Yes, you can praise God all by yourself. You don't have to go to church to praise God. I've talked to many people who say, well, I worship on the golf course, or I worship uh, you know, when I'm out on the river you know, paddling a canoe. That's great. That's great. But in order to, A, obey God's commandment to come together and worship, and B, to really experience grateful worship with your whole heart, it is, it is essential to be gathered in community with God's people. Something special happens when we get together and do this that doesn't happen on the golf course and that doesn't happen on the river. This is something else entirely different and more special. So he's saying that I will give thanks to the Lord Most High in the sanctuary of the Lord. This is, you know, a special place, Woodmont Baptist Church, this congregation. I got a letter just this morning from a girl who is a, a student at Samford University. She's from Birmingham, but she got an internship here in Nashville this past summer. And she emailed Lil Cook, our ministry assistant, and said, is there anybody at Woodmont Baptist Church who wants to host me for the summer? Anybody that wants to keep me around for the summer? And Ted and Lynn Weiser said, we'll take her. We don't know her, but we'll take her for the summer. And she had a great experience. She attended worship here all summer long. Her name is Olivia Odom, and she wrote a letter. Dear Woodmont Church family, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your kindness, hospitality, and for welcoming me with such open arms. It was so nice to have a church home for the summer. So many offered me a place to stay or a Sunday lunch. I really appreciate it. Jesus' love was so evident in everyone at Woodmont. Thank you all so much for everything. I will miss Woodmont so very much. I hope to be back to visit soon. Thank you, Olivia. That's the kind of place this is. Warm, welcoming people of God who show hospitality and love. In this kind of context, it is easy to give thanks to the Lord for the good things that he's done. And gratitude is the hallmark of a worshiper. Worshippers must be grateful. You, you know, secular researchers have done all this study on, on the happiness. What does it mean to be happy? Secular science has done all this research on what makes people happy. How can we be happy? And the one thing that they keep coming back to time and time again in all this research is that gratitude is, is the key to happiness. People who are happy are grateful. People who wallow in self-pity and see themselves as victims are miserable. The people who are grateful, so says science, are generally happy people. Sometimes science catches up to the Bible, right? That's what's happening here. This is God's prescription, not only for his own glory, but for our thriving, our happiness, our flourishing as well. God designed us for worship. And when we live openly acknowledging all the amazing, wonderful things that God has done for us, we're happy and we thrive. 
and God receives the glory for that. I mean, think about all the great things that God has done for us, for you, for me. How, how can we not be grateful? Look at verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. If we really delight in, in God's works, then we study them. Why do we study them? To, to get a degree? <clears throat> to get good grades? To, to, to get a job? No. We study God's great works because the more we understand them, the more pleasure it brings us. The more we glimpse into the awesome character of who God is, and the more we delight in that because it's fulfilling. It's, it brings us pleasure beyond anything this world can offer us. We see how excellent and how perfect and lovely God truly is. I've never been to the Grand Canyon. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? I've had lots of friends and family who've been, and they talk about how just overwhelming and how breathtaking it is to stand on the precipice of the Grand Canyon and just behold the grandeur and the majesty of God's creation. There's a British writer and, and playwright, J.B. Priestley, who visited the Grand Canyon on a trip to the States in the early 1900s, and he wrote this, I felt God had set it there as a sign. I felt wonder and awe, but at the heart of them, a deep, rich happiness. I had seen his handiwork and rejoiced. There was a joy, there was a happiness that, that undergirded that sense of awe and wonder. J.B. Priestley had beheld and studied God's works and he was delighting in them. We're going to have a prime opportunity to do that tomorrow, aren't we? This natural phenomenon that, that the Lord has, has wrought that only happens once every hundred years or so that we're going to get to enjoy here in Nashville in a special way. The New York Times had an article about the eclipse that said this, a total eclipse will span the continental U.S. on Monday for the first time in nearly a century. Even for the most jaded stargazers, sky gazers, these events can provoke a visceral sense of wonder. New Yorkers know something about being jaded, right? <laughs> he says that even New Yorkers have to marvel at, at, at the amazing things that God has done. There's a visceral sense of wonder. That doesn't sound like the New York Times. That sounds like someone who must respond in praise and in gratitude for the awesome things that God has done, for his majestic wonders. It's deeply satisfying to delight in what God has done, isn't it? We were made for that. Look at verse 3. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Splendor and majesty are the signs of kingship. It's what kings projected, splendor and majesty. Our God is indeed the ruler of the universe. That's going to be on full display tomorrow as he sits on his throne over the heavens in majestic sovereignty, ruling over the sun and the moon and the skies, all of which he put in place with his fingers, the Psalms tell us. Not only did he create these amazing things, but he also controls them by his good grace and will. So look at the next verse, verse 4. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. <coughs> the Lord is gracious and merciful. Why does God cause us to remember his works? 
Is it because he's needy and he like craves attention? No. God causes us to remember the awesome things he's done because he loves us and he's gracious and merciful and knows how much joy we're going to get when God causes us to remember the things he's done. He knows how it will fulfill our purposes, what he designed us for, when he brings to our minds the amazing things that he has done. So God faithfully provides for us, and he points us back to himself constantly. Look at verse 5. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. You know, it was the covenant that God established with Abraham back in Genesis 15 that created this special people for God's own possession that would be holy and set apart for God's purposes, which were what? To bless the world. God said to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. And he who blesses you, I will bless. And him who curses you, I will curse. And through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was God's covenant. He remembers his people, how he created us to be a special possession for himself. But he promised later in Jeremiah 31 and through other prophets that one day he would institute a new covenant with a whole new kind of, of parameters to it. It would be a whole different kind of people that he would make for himself. He was talking about you and me, the church. This is a beautiful passage, Jeremiah 31. The Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, the Exodus. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. We're studying Hosea on Wednesday nights. This picture of infidelity where Israel, the wife of God, has chosen another suitor, gone after Baal and other false gods. They broke the covenant, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law not on stone tablets, but within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How is that possible? Through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus took the cup at the Last Supper, he held it up before his disciples and he gave thanks. And he declared, this is the cup that is poured out for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. We're going to partake of that cup in just a moment here. And as the Lord remembers his covenant faithfully, so we too should remember his covenant. It should inspire us to remember what God has done in order to make us his people. Keep going. Verse 6. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. Yes, God gave his people the promised land that he swore to Abraham that he would give to his descendants as their inheritance. And he showed them through his mighty arm and through his outstretched arm his power by taking a 
ragtag bunch of Israelites and driving out the mighty armies of Canaan like you would scatter a, a bunch of flies away or something. Yes, and the New Covenant also includes a glorious inheritance, right? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Isn't that beautiful? We now in the new covenant have a glorious inheritance that can never spoil or fade because of what Jesus Christ has done. Again, that's what we celebrate at the table this morning. Verse 7, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. He's the only one that won't let us down. Everything else in this life will. They are established forever, verse 8, and ever. That, that word forever is several times in this psalm. Forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Now wait a minute. It says here that his works are established forever? You know, Jude was kind of disappointed that the eclipse only lasts like a minute and a half. The totality only lasts. Like, why is all this big deal about, you know, it's only a minute. It's like 90 seconds. Why are we all freaking out about it? 90 seconds of, you know, nothing's forever, right? Even the majestic Grand Canyon erodes and changes constantly, right? And, and scientists tell us that even the sun itself will eventually do what all stars do and burn itself out. So, so how are God's works established forever? This can't be talking about God's natural phenomena that He's created. This is something deeper. Look at verse 9. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. Okay, this is something bigger than the Grand Canyon. This is something gr grander than the grandest of canyons. This is something so much more infinite and lasting. We're talking about eternity now, all of a sudden. This is not merely about enjoying the, the majesty of what God's made in the heavens or, or on the earth. This is about how to live forever into God's goodness and His perfection of glory. Forever. The final verse, verse 10, says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures how long? Forever. This is a familiar phrase, isn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All the wisdom books, Job, Ecclesiastes, uh, songs, uh, the, the Psalms, they all have a version of this phrase. And back when we did our Wednesday night series through the Proverbs, we said that it's kind of the motto of the wisdom books. Proverbs 1.7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's so true, isn't it? And fear, when we say fear, it's not talking about being afraid of God. It's not a, a scared kind of fear. This kind of fear is a, a deep sense of reverence and awe before the high and holy, awesome God. Verse 9 ends with holy and awesome is his name. And in our culture, you know, awesome doesn't quite have the same ring to it as what the Bible is saying. This is not the psalmist saying, wow, God's awesome. High five. Everything's awesome. But no, it's not, it's not what this is talking about. This is about real 
awe, being completely overwhelmed and blown away by the greatness of our God. And, and this, this motto, this fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is, 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 is the heart of what it means to have wisdom, is to be in awe of the awesomeness of God. The, the Psalms show us God's prescription for wisdom, right? This whole series, we're talking about how worship is a part of God's prescription for various parts of our lives. And if we want to be wise, then we must begin with worshipfully, wor- worshiping the Lord in awe and in reverence. Having that reverence of Him that leads to that perfect place of understanding. And wisdom is, it isn't about knowing stuff, is it? We talked about this in our Proverbs series. We all know plenty of really smart people who studied a long time and know a lot of things, but they're incredibly unwise, right? Make incredibly foolish decisions. Wisdom has nothing to do with, with book learning. We have a lot of PhDs here in our congregation, a lot of incredibly brilliant and learned people who have studied for 15, 20 years, who've written dissertations, who know uh, John Hash, when we had the senior uh, adult lunch on Friday, Calvin was quizzing the senior adults on the days of the week, where they come from. And, and Dr. Hash was reciting, you know, the, the Greek and the, the Roman and names for the gods and goddesses. He's just such a wealth of knowledge. But he's a wise man, too. And that has nothing to do with his degrees or his knowledge. To be wise is, is something totally different. Biblical wisdom is a skill that has to be intentionally sought after, intentionally pursued. And just like any skill, it has to be practiced and honed over time. Real wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. Wisdom is about being good at life. Last night at dinner, we finally did get reservations somewhere. Morgan found them, not me. Uh, Morgan asked me over dinner, she said, what do we need to do to get better at life? <laughs> I feel like sometimes we're, we're just not very good at life. What do we need to do to get better at life? I said, oh, it's in the sermon tomorrow. <laughs> wisdom is about being good at life. That's, it's a skill in the art of godly living. One commentary I, I read said that biblical wisdom is a practical thing. It means understanding how to live. It means, in brief, learning how to be an artisan of life by the gift of God's Holy Spirit. Have you ever seen an athlete do something so incredible that the commentators say, oh, he's an artist. Oh, she's, she's doing this so beautifully. It's art. It's poetry in motion. You know, I think about this year, Roger Federer, who's my age, we're like a month apart in age, and he won the, the, uh, the Australian Open for the fifth time in his career, and he won Wimbledon this year for the eighth time in his career. And if he feels like I do, like just from walking upstairs and stuff now at, at 35, I don't know how he's doing it. But he's, he's doing this amazing thing in the sport of tennis that is a, a master craftsman who's doing something that, that is art. He, he's an artisan at tennis, right? Well, I know some incredibly godly people, and we're blessed to have many in this congregation here today who have walked this path of wise living for, for so long that they are really masters at the craft of godly living. We would do well to watch them and to emulate them as much as possible. The psalm closes here by proclaiming that 
God, this God whom we stand before with awe and with reverence, that his praise goes on forever because of the great things that he has done. You know, when the Grand Canyon is reduced to rubble, God's praise will endure. When the sun doesn't shine anymore, the old song says that God's praise will endure. God's greatest work is not a tourist attraction. God's greatest work is not a natural phenomenon either. God's greatest work is something that results in eternal praise. Verse 9 says that God has sent redemption to his people. You know, before in the Old Testament, God, before he gave them the promised land, he, he first had to deliver them from bondage, from the chains of Egypt, right? He had to break the yoke of slavery that Pharaoh had placed on God's people by miraculously, through ten plagues, delivering them by a shepherd, Moses and Aaron, out of Egypt. Do you know that he led them through the Red Sea Road and then he vanquished all their enemies behind them? We call this the Exodus, right? But the Exodus started with a spotless lamb in Egypt, right? There was the blood of the spotless lamb that had to be spread on the doorway. And if they did that, then the angel of death would pass over their homes and they would be saved from death. God's redemption has many parts to it. The new covenant also begins with a new exodus. John 8.36, our Lord Jesus says that if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. We've been freed now from the chains of, of sin, the, the bondage of our flesh that we all dwelled in at one time. Through Jesus Christ, we claim freedom from that. And we have been led out of death and darkness through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says to the church in Rome, Romans 6, 22, but now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're going to move now into a time of reflection on the new exodus, the new covenant that is represented by the cup that Jesus held up and said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood which is poured out for you. That we have been led out of sin and darkness by our shepherd, by the blood of a spotless lamb who was without blemish, who suffered and bled for us. I encourage you to use this time to ask God to search your heart and show you where you've fallen short, to show you where you need to repent and to turn back to him with all your heart. The Bible says that when we take the Lord's Supper, that we must examine ourselves first. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Mark's going to come and sing a song for us about remembering the new covenant, remembering what the Lord has done for us. I encourage you to use this time to reflect, search your own heart, and ask God to search your heart as well and show you where you need to repent. If you have something that you need to, to ask God to forgive you, do that now. If there's a person who, whom you've held a grudge against or you're so angry still, this is time to let that go. We don't approach the elements holding on to that kind of bitterness. 
and that kind of hatred in our hearts, I encourage you to, to de- deal with the Holy Spirit now as he leads you to. If you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never committed your life to him, we're going to sing a, a, a song of response now. If, if there's something that you felt during that reflection time that you need to get right with the Lord, I encourage you to, to use this time now to do that. Or come talk to me and pray about it. And you can come to the altar and pray here. It'll be open as well. Don't leave this place this morning without doing whatever it is that the Lord has led you to do by his Holy Spirit. If you need to join our church, if you've never been baptized, whatever decision it is that you need to make this morning, don't tarry. Don't delay any longer. Let's stand and sing our hymn of response at this time. There is a Redeemer. 377, there is a Redeemer.